Hello, and uh, Frank Backer here, and greeting, uh, greetings to all, and welcome to The Daily Peacemaker. Uh, today's episode, um, we're going to focus on the fourth, fifth, and sixth principles of Kingian nonviolence. And to, um, to set a little context for those who are joining us for the first time, um, and welcome to those that are joining for the first time, and uh, a little sad you haven't showed up before, but then on the other hand, I'm very glad that you showed up uh, for this um, episode. But anyway, um, so our philosophy is basically, if we're going to create a culture of peace, it's gotta come from the bottom up from people like you and I, and it's gotta be grounded in nonviolence. So given that philosophy, um, we have found that if what's really helpful is to have a model of nonviolence, what, what it is, the ins and outs of it, a model, a philosophy, whatever you want to name it. Um, and we found that the Kingian uh, nonviolent um, steps and principles are very, very helpful. They sort of provide a container for how you're living your daily life and uh, helpful ways to look at um, how nonviolently you're, you're living over a period of time. So there are six principles and six steps. Um, the last episode we did was on the principles one, two, and three. So now we're gonna do um, four, five, and six. And it, um, what we use is a um, highly um, re uh, video with has received many rewards and has three of the uh, probably three of the most top notch uh, nonviolent trainers in the country providing the that do the video and talk about these steps. And uh, I'm only kidding. It's it's just three myself and two other people that that do it and it hasn't won any awards. So, but just to get you enticed, but I don't wanna like come off like people saying, oh, this won an award, I can do better than that. Um, but anyway, so we'll, uh, oh, the, the other piece is this is, the video is um, a little bit long um, and you can obviously, what a lot of people do is watch it or listen to it in sections, you know, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there. Um, or you can do the whole thing and you'll probably be so enthralled and enticed by once you get into it, you won't be able to stop um, until you get to the end. But uh, no, I'm only kidding. One of the things though watching this is, is it does take some patience and some endurance. And both of those are um, helpful qualities as we try to live this daily life of nonviolence. So, it, so just to let you know, so, a little bit longer than some of the other one. And uh, what what's that? Oh, one of my buddies is saying, if it's so long, why don't you stop babbling and get it going? So um, that's probably a good idea. So let me see if we can do this, do the screen share and I go up to files. It's in Google Drive. And now uh, we're gonna share it over here and then um, comes up, we're gonna to connect to Google Drive. We're getting there, so hang on. 
Via, be patient. So we go here and we want principles uh, four, five, and six. And we go with that. Let anybody see it. And uh, go to shared screen. We're almost there. Patience, patience. And here it comes. Um, share. And this guy always keeps appearing up here. Let me see if I can get rid of him. And, uh, get this going. We'll get started with uh, my good friends, Madeline and Pam, as we take a look at the um, last three uh, principles of uh, Kenyan nonviolence. And I'll start with the, the fourth one, which um, is, a, I found a little, convoluted sentence, but the, the way it usually comes out is accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve a goal. Let me read that again. Accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve a goal. So I'm gonna um, try to take that apart. <laughs> um, I would start with actually at the end, um, the notion of achieving a goal. So in, in any action, whether it's um, nonviolent or, or violent, you have a goal, an end, um, something you want to accomplish. So in the civil rights movement, um, the goal from my perspective was um, establish racial equality. If you're on a football team, say, the goal is to win the game. If you have a, um, a falling out with a relative, your goal might be to reestablish that relationship. So the goal is, um, sometimes it takes a while to, to really get a hold of what, what is your end game? What are you really trying to achieve? Um, so then, um, for the sake of the cause, I had a hard time with that because they almost sound the same. For the sake of the cause and the goal, it's almost um, like the interchangeable. You know? But I, I, um, I would substitute um, the game plan. How are you going to achieve the goal? You know, what's your game plan? Um, like in the civil rights, a lot, a lot of the uh, plan was, from my perspective, to um, engage or um, I'm not sure the right word, but to act against what they felt were unjust laws and to do it in a nonviolent way. Um, which and that was part of that was to raise people's consciousness and and those um, issues. So there was a lot of, that was the plan. This is, here's the goal. This is how we're going to do it. And flipping back to the beginning, if you're going to do nonviolent, you're going to, if your plan is, is not violating or take football game, even a football game, um, if your plan is to win the game and maybe the plan is to not take any unnecessary penalties. That might be part of the plan. 
So then you go back to the beginning, suffering without retaliation. And um, most people, when they hear that, they go, what? Suffering without retaliation? If someone does something to me, um, they deserve to have payback. Um, so it's that uh, almost a natural from way back survival brain. Um, you know, if you cause me pain or harm, you deserve what you get back. And then other people will, will look at that and say, um, suffering without retaliation, that's a victim. You want people to be victimized and fall into that role. Um, but the, it doesn't say suffering and do nothing. It says suffering and don't retaliate, which means getting, basically getting revenge, getting back at that other person. And it, so it doesn't say suffer and be a victim and just keep letting people beat up on you in various and sundry ways. So then what, what do you do when someone, um, when you feel someone has harmed you? Um, physically, when someone harms you physically, it's pretty, pretty graphic. But when they, when they, when you feel offended by what someone said about you, or they um, tricked you, or they told lies about you, um, what I try to do is, first of all, ask myself, well, why does that offend me? You know, what in me got hooked by that, if anything? So that's one thing. Look at your own um, inner workings when it's a, um, a non-physical attack. Um, and another thing is, even whether, whether it's physical or, or psychological, um, is being able to Ask yourself, why is that person feeling the need to do that? What's, where were they harmed? Um, you know, in terms of what would cause them. And, and try, you know, you use the word love, you've ever responded to love. And to me, that's, that's a great idea. But what, what does that mean in everyday life? You know? um, so there is a, a way of not responding with your own violence and, and revenge. And I think the, the, one of the key things to remember about this is um, you're not gonna get to the place where you are totally able to accept suffering without retaliation. It's gonna take a while. So the goal for me is always to um, do a little bit better in that area of accepting um, the suffering without retaliation. It also doesn't mean um, don't have feelings about it. You know, if someone harms you and you get angry, um, that is fine. It's okay. It's natural. The, the question then is, what are you going to do with that anger, that energy that, that you have? You know, are you going to... Um, 
use it to uh, motivate yourself to even stay um, nonviolent. So there's, there's uh, a lot of um, complexity to this step, our principle, probably to all of us, a lot of complexity. And um, to another thing that that enters, <clears throat> excuse me, that enters into this is the ability to um, be patient and to persevere. You know, it's, you're learning how to act nonviolently in these situations. And if you accept the suffering, that's, there's a, um, an energy that gets communicated, I think, to the person that's, that's doing the violence to you. You know, they, um, it's hard to explain, but I, um, or I find it hard to explain. But there is a, an exchange, and there are plenty of examples where um, a person has threatened to um, use violence, and the nonviolent person ex accepted it, and the person um, said, oh, 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 you know, there's a classic example of someone, I'm thinking that, Civil rights, excuse me, where someone was going to attack them with their knife if they didn't get out of the chair. And the, the person said, Well, I'm not going to move, but you know, if you have to do that, uh, go ahead. And the, the perpetrator, if you will, was like, Well, they just couldn't do it. Uh, so, so there's an energy conveyed there. So, um, let me stop there. And if uh, Either Pam or uh, Mal have responses or questions. Great. If um, if not, we can move forward with the next one. Mm. Well, I think Martin Luther King's people, and that, that I always have that vision of them sitting at the table at the uh, counter and having you know food poured on their head. Yeah. And that, that, yeah, and and they accepted that because of the goal that they were, mm -hmm. and they knew that if they responded, that would their goal would not be reached, not yeah. the way that they would want it to be reached. Mm -hmm. But it, it it doesn't. It's nothing that you can do without a lot of soul searching training. Yes, just, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. working together in your community. I mean, all these things are go against. What we would naturally do. Mm -hmm. If somebody poured coffee on our head or whatever, you know, what's our natural instinct is to, you know, to get up and give it back or whatever, push another way. But they were trained not to do that. I think that's an enormous feather in their cap. I, I'm always intrigued when I see those pictures. So it can be done, but it, it is not the natural reaction. Yeah. And even on, on a more personal level, you know, if you have a, a dispute with a neighbor or a family member, um, you have to be somewhat aware of your own feelings and be able to control them um, and continue to try to deal with that person in a, in a nonviolent way. Um, there's a a whole program on um, nonviolent communication by Rosenberg, which is a whole way of, on a personal level, um, 
trying to heal a relationship or make a relationship better. Um, so it does take a lot of work, whether it's a global, you know, a mass movement or individual. You know, and again, it's that um, trying to be a little bit better today than you were yesterday. So. Yeah, and another thing, Frank, as you're talking about personal or a more global goal, um, it's all very much tied up together. Yeah. So when I think about the young men and women who sat at the lunch counters and endured the insulting behavior of people around them, um, in some cases actually doing at least some physical harm to these people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if they were to fight back, then the goal that they're after, which is to be treated as in, in an equitable way, would have been overwhelmed by the visual of two oh, people yeah. fighting against each other. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the ultimate goal is to be treated equitably. Mm -hmm. the, uh, they're using the lunch counters as a way to, you know, as a as a battle line in a certain sense, but not a not a violent mm -hmm. from end anyway, not a violent battle line, but a moral battle line. Mm -hmm. And as long as they engage at the moral level, then the battle becomes clear to everyone. As soon as they engage in a physical level of retaliation it's not the same battle that they're originally fighting for. It becomes just a spectacle for people mm -hmm. who are used oh, yeah. to seeing people fight with each other. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I, I do see that difference between the goal. The goal is to be treated equitably and the, um, what's the other word, Frank? The, the, uh, the cause, for the sake of the cause. For the sake of the sake of the cause. Okay, so the cause is to be treated equitably. The goal is to um, basically highlight the day-to-day -day, uh, inequity that people experience um, so that it can be seen and so it can be confronted and dealt with at a moral level because the physical fighting is not gonna achieve the um, objective, the long-term objective. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll go on to um, principle five because uh, it is a very um, interesting and complex, like everything else, uh, but definitely something we should strive for. And principle five says that we need to avoid internal violence of the spirit as well as external physical violence. And when I break this apart, I understand the external physical violence. If you're a nonviolent person, it's very clear that you should avoid external physical violence, fighting back, insulting back, or, or whatever. But the hard part, I think, is to understand what is meant by internal violence of the spirit. Um, and it gets, I think, to a very deep moral um, issue is about that you have to understand the consequences of the attitude that is in 
say you're in a campaign to bring about change, that attitude has to be pure, I think, is the word I would use. That there isn't the retaliation in your own heart, the hatred in your own heart, the dismissal of that person as human in your own heart. That's internal violence of the spirit when you hold all of that. And I think we don't even realize that, um, that, that that happens easily. It's very hard. To, it's, it's about forgiveness, you know, which, you know, we've learned, at least I've learned over the years, that forgiveness is just as important to the person who uh, needs the forgiveness as it is for the person asking for forgiveness. So when you hold that grudge for so long in your heart because you don't want to go to that person, or maybe you've gone and they don't want to forgive you, but if you can forgive them um, in spite of it all, then that takes a lot of, um, of a load off of your heart, off of your spirit, and that is healing in itself. It's not an easy thing to do. I see it all around me, and um, you know, people who, especially in families where there's been a, some disagreement, or someone said something or ignored somebody, and they just hold on to that anger and resentment for years, you know, and not forgiving. And the person who had that happen to them is probably suffering even more than the person who did the deed because they've probably gone on and forgot about it that person holds on to it so it can happen i think in a um uh in a one-on-one -on -one, or it can happen in a greater um venue like in when you're working within a campaign for to bring about change or um <clears throat> i think it's just one of those things that we as a true non-violent person uh we have we we can't I'm going to say shoot our opponent, but I mean harm our opponent, but we also have to refuse to hate that person. Mm -hmm. And for especially right now in today's world, which is January 8th, 2020, um, you know, looking at the situations that have happened over the last few days, it seems very easy to hate the demonstrators that moved into the Capitol and just, you know, um, defaced and defiled that space and threatened the lives of other people. There's a lot of rhetoric out there that these people are hateful and uh, using a lot of commentators using words like thugs and um, um, terrible ways of describing them. And yet, as nonviolent people, we're called to love them. To love them as human beings, not the acts that they're doing, but the fact that they are human beings and whatever it is that they believe is what they believe. So we're looking to see the good in that person. That's the only way you can preserve the community. Otherwise, we have the splintering of the community and um, that really we're about seeking the good of the people and the community and bringing the, the community back together, whether it's a family unit or a national unit or a world unit, you know, we, there is this real need, I think, to what, um, I don't know if it's only Christians, but what we call agape love, 
which is that love that is um, understanding and redeeming the goodwill for all. Big, big thing to live up to, I think, but really worth it, I think, to learn about and think about and um, remember that we have to live together, no matter what. We have to live together. And if we see everybody as our enemy, um, and that they deserve to be uh, hated, then we will never have a beloved community. So even though we see these, to see other people, many people maybe as our enemies, we still have to treat them with love and understanding and um, not hate them, which is a big order. So I think you need community to do that. You need your own um, people who are nonviolent like you are to talk it through, to talk about your feelings, to help you because it's not um, easy um, to come to that place where you can love your enemies and want only good for them. So um, I think that the spirit and morale that people had during the civil rights was to bring this, um, ex uh, to bring the internal violence of the spirit to cure that. I don't know if it's cure, it might not be the right word, but to recognize that that is going to keep them from their goal. Mm -hmm. That if people harbor all this violence in their heart and in their spirit, then the goal of a united community won't happen. So they did a lot of work, I think, um, through music, community action, working together, being together, encouraging each other to, um, to be able to do this very difficult principle of avoiding internal bonds in the spirit. So I think we've got the external physical violence. We understand that better. I do. The internal violence of the spirit is one that I think is a constant, constantly for me anyway, uh, thing that I must work on and understand and, and uh, pray about really. So. I love that, Natalie, that idea of praying about it. It's like taking a moment to have all of that experience of all those feelings and thoughts and just being with it and praying for, I don't know, the forgiveness or the wisdom to, to deal with it. Um, I would, I agree with pretty much everything you said, but I build some of it out a little bit and say, um, yes, that forgiveness. I love that notion of forgiveness and the way Dr. King had a phrase uh, or a sentence, um, hating someone is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah, yeah. Did he <laughs> so say that? I know that. Harm, more harm than, than it is to the other person. Yeah. Um, but that does say something about okay, you have you know it's natural, it's human um, to have uh, angry feelings about somebody who's hurt you or who's hurt someone you love or hurt an institution that you love. So there are feelings that come up from that, and I don't think the only thing we do with that is to just forgive the other people. I think there are two other things we do. Number one, manage our own feelings. We need to acknowledge that we're not wrong to have feelings, but we do want to manage those feelings in a way that they don't drive us unconsciously 
to do some action that we would regret. So number one is that, um, you know, I'm forgetting my other thought. Um, <laughs> we have to manage the feelings. I've forgotten what my other thought was. <laughs> well, sort of a, um, as you uh, attempt to recollect that thought, um, I would add, um, one of the um, things that sort of arose within me as you were talking, Madeline, is the, um, the notion of, of, like in this particular situation that just happened in our capital. So um, a number of those people that were um, storming the, uh, the capital, um, they were doing uh, something illegal and um, at least from the perspective of, of the war and that. And now people, whether even with the president calling, you know, he's got to resign or be impeached. Um, and on the surface, um, those are fairly understandable um, issues, you know, with people calling for him to be impeached that, or, you know, the um, people that stormed the um, the capital for them to be arrested and prosecuted now. But I, I wonder if the people that are calling for that, if there isn't underneath that sort of so-called legitimate call a real um, anger, you know, like those sons of a bum, they're going to get what they deserve. And then you appear to be fairly rational up here because makes sense that they should suffer the consequences. So because how do you, uh, this is a rhetorical question, how do you um, deal with someone that's broken the law or really harmed you um, and there's consequences to that? How do you enact those consequences or try to enact them and still have a compassionate attitude towards that person? Because um, I, I think you, you can do both. I like the word compassion um, in this case better than, than love, even though they're sort of similar in, in many ways. You know, compassion is like really having, from my perspective, um, a feeling for that person and what they might have gone through in their life and what they might be about to go through. Um, so that's a, to me, that's a I don't know a better word in how to uh, say, be compassionate and at the same time um, work to have these people suffer the consequences of their, their actions. Um, you know, and that would be true in any situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know that a lot of many people who are in prison, of course are there because of violent acts. And then when you look at their background, mm. what, they, what they lived through as children or were treated like as, you know, young adults or whatever, you can understand their lashing out. And I think it's true even with demonstrators. I can understand what they, why they did what they did. I don't agree with it, but what their information is, is sending them in that direction. So. There should be some compassion for the fact that, you know, 
I feel they're misled, but they, they still are doing it in their spirit of what they think is right. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's right that they're misled. And I think who the folks who are misleading them are culpable in a much larger way in right. sense. Yeah. But it also goes back to each individual that they have chosen their information sources. They have chosen uh, to believe what they believe and not believe, you know, whatever, um, and to act in certain ways on those beliefs. There are lots of places on that route where they might have made other choices. So it goes back, Frank, to what you were saying a little while ago, and I'll use the word accountability. I mean, we can be enormously compassionate for people who have made choices that just don't work um, for the health of our society on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, people need to be held accountable. And what does that mean? It means knowing the facts of what they did, knowing having very specific information that they and everyone can look at that says, okay, this is what happened. This is what you did. These are our norms. These are our laws. And the consequences are this. And even Dr. King talked about that. He says, when we violate the law, um, the, the way we're doing it, the reason we're doing it, suggests that we have the highest respect for the law. It's not that we don't, don't think the law got, you know, we don't have respect for the law. We have respect for the law as it's written, but we also um, have respect for that higher law, the law, you know, the sacred law of, um, of I don't know, the, maybe your religious sense of right and wrong. Yeah, and if, you know they they mentioned in the suffering piece of without retaliation, if you're going to enter into a um, a mass movement type thing, um, you might want to consider how ready you are to die. That might go to prison. Is that enough? Yeah. So it's you know, but um, I know how to say this, but it, um, I feel in a way that. Um, and I don't know how this fits in, but people that are upset and annoyed um, at what happened in our capital are um, judging those people as doing wrong. So we're looking at it from our perspective. And uh, you go back in history, this country was founded on a, a violent revolution. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's it gets um, very complex, um, and I've I've found that whenever I take a position, and, and I think this is part of nonviolence. You also I also try to take the position that um, I might be wrong, but I have to, as best I can, stand in my own truth, for lack of a better word. But at the same time. Be open to what what the other side is saying. I, I suppose the the one bias I have is you don't have to use violence. That's that's probably yeah. um, the 
if you think our the government, you know, in this case there was cheating and fraud and all that stuff, um, you don't have to use violence to address it, even though um, most people will say, and I, I couldn't even say with my bias, I may be wrong. Maybe the humanity is not evolved enough to um, right wrongs without some violence sometimes. So I don't know. It's, it, it can just kind of like spin around and get really deep. Um, but I, I guess the bottom line is to, to hold people with with love and compassion in your heart as best you can. While you hold them accountable for their actions, both things. Both things. Yeah. Yes. But it's a it's accountable um, based on what? On our laws, and also the the when you go back to the civil rights movement, the um, yeah, okay, the, the civil rights people were, were breaking the law and they were willing to be accountable to the consequences of their actions based on the current laws. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, that's... It felt it was unfair, yeah. And these people yeah. were an unfair law. Yeah, unjust, right. But, yeah, but they were willing to accept the consequences. Well, we'll see. Right, yeah. Yeah. We don't yeah. know. Yeah. So, anyway. Well, we should move on. Are we on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. We'll give you the hard one. Okay. Well, I love this principle, uh, this uh, the sixth principle in Kingian nonviolence. Um, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Um, and the reason that I love it be, is because it requires so much grappling <laughs> to understand the meaning of it. And it, and in fact, all of them do actually require a lot of grappling, but this is often the toughest one for people that are new to this to, to grapple with. And um, because there's a lot of evidence against um against it at first glance like really the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice i can give you a lot of examples where that is not what's happening or what happened um but there's another thing dr king used to say which i think belongs in tight uh connection with this principle and that is that um change doesn't roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but comes through continuous struggle. Mm. And so I think when Dr. King articulates this principle that the universe bends toward justice, he's not saying, well, if you sit around and twiddle your thumbs <laughs> long enough, justice will inevitably arrive. He's clearly not saying that. Um, he, I think what he's saying is that that sense of justice is inherent in the human spirit. And we can recognize what something about what justice is, and we have an innate internal sense of 
desire, knowing what it is and desiring it. And there's energy behind that. So if we live in this world together and we see, see instances of injustice, there's something inside of us that is called upon and that brings out our best selves um, to try and make that difference. So when the universe bends toward justice, he's talking about the hearts of human beings actually bend toward justice and the human family bend toward justice. Even little kids have some sense of what's there and what's not there. Little kids. Probably more than adults. <laughs> well, life gets complicated. <laughs> well, the older you get. And the fact is, you know, when we're children, we expect our environment. Many children, I not all children grow up in a relatively fair environment, so I don't want to say too much about that. But a lot of children grow up in an environment that fundamentally has a sense of fairness to it. Once you get to be a grown up, you find out that doesn't automatically happen. And you need to participate in the generation of justice. So, yes, the arc of the moral universe is long. We have a lot to learn, and we're still learning how to do it, but it bends toward justice. Okay, uh, we ramble on a little bit more, but I think um, I'll stop there. Um, <clears throat> hope you uh, enjoyed it. As you can see, as we kind of rambled along, it, it can get pretty complex. And uh, going back, and uh, I think one point is we're trying to get the, the principles and the steps more to where you can apply them in your everyday life. Um, a lot of of some of the things we touched on were more um, global, if you will, or more around movements and demonstrations and that. And those are obviously very important. Um, but also we want to keep trying to get it back to how we can use these principles and steps in our own individual life. Um, so it gets a little uh, complex there from time to time. But I hope you enjoyed uh, the presentation. And at some point in the near future, I think we'll go back and look at these uh, principles, especially just one at a time and really try to give examples of how they can be used in everyday ordinary life. Um, and given that, again, we'd love to get input from you people in terms of um, questions or points or um, points of view, observations, those types of things, which we can incorporate into our future um, episodes. So uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. This is, we're doing it episode six and we're with four parts. So this is the second part. And the, the title is basically living into the beloved community, which is really about you and I building this beloved community. So uh, another point the, that I mentioned before, the steps and principles, if you go to the website, and um, I hope you do, um, dailypeacemaker.com, in the resource page, there is a place where you can download the six principles and six steps. 
So take, uh, give us a visit, send us an email. You can call, leave a message. I would really like to hear from you, especially since we're all doing this together, you know, um, trying to build this beloved community. And it's good to, uh, to keep in mind that the arc of the universe, the evolution of creation, if you will, does move towards justice for all. And uh, it's hard work. And in a sense, it's pretty much up to us if we're going to get there. So with that, um, may your day go well or your evening, wherever you might be. And um, peace. All right, you take care. And we'll go over here and uh, end it also. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening. Hello, and uh, Frank Backer here, and greeting, uh, greetings to all, and welcome to the Daily Peacemaker. Uh, today's episode, um, we're going to focus on the fourth, fifth, and sixth principles of Kingian nonviolence. And to, um, to set a little context for those who are joining us for the first time. Um, and welcome to those that are joining for the first time. And uh, a little sad you haven't showed up before, but then on the other hand, I'm very glad that you showed up uh, for this uh, episode. But anyway, um, so our philosophy is basically, if we're going to create a culture of peace, it's got to come from the bottom up from people like you and I, and it's got to be grounded in nonviolence. So given that philosophy, um, we have found that if what's really helpful is to have a model of nonviolence, what, what it is, the ins and outs of it, a model, a philosophy, whatever you want to name it. Um, and we found that the Kingian um, nonviolent um, steps and principles are very, very helpful. They sort of provide a container for how you're living your daily life and uh, helpful ways to look at um, how nonviolently you're, you're living over a period of time. So there are six principles and six steps. Um, the last episode we did was on the principles one, two, and three. So now we're going to do um, four, five, and six. And it, um, what we use is a um, highly um, re um, video with has received many rewards and has three of the uh, probably three of the most top-notch uh, nonviolent trainers in the country providing the, the, that do the video and talk about these steps. And uh, I'm only kidding. It's, it's just three, myself and two other people that, that do it. And it hasn't won any awards. So, but just to get you enticed, but I don't want to like come off like people saying, oh, this won an award, I can do better than that. Um, but anyway, so we'll, uh, oh, the, the other piece is this is the video is um, a little bit long um, and you can obviously what a lot of people do is watch it or listen to it in sections, you know, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there. Um, or you can do the whole thing and you'll probably be so enthralled and enticed by once you get into it, you won't be able to stop. Um, 
until you get to the end. But uh, no, I'm only kidding. One of the things about watching this is, is it does take some patience and some endurance. And both of those are um, helpful qualities as we try to live this daily life of nonviolence. So, it, so just to let you know, it's a little bit longer than some of the other ones. And uh, what, what's that? Oh, one of my buddies is saying, if it's so long, why don't you stop babbling and get it going? So um, that's probably a good idea. So let me see if we can do this, do the screen share and I go up to files. That's in Google Drive. And now uh, we're going to share it over here. And then um, comes up, we're going to connect to Google Drive. We're getting there, so hang on. I'll be, uh, be patient. So we go here. And we want principles uh, four, five, and six. And we go with that. Let anybody see it. And uh, go to shared screen. We're almost there. Patience, patience. And here it comes. Um, share. And this guy always keeps appearing up here. Let me see if I can get rid of him and uh, get this going. We'll get started with uh, my good friends, Madeline and Pam, as we take a look at the um, last three uh, principles of uh, Kenyan nonviolence. And I'll start with the, the fourth one, which um, is, a, I found a little convoluted sentence, but the, the way it usually comes out is accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve a goal. Let me read that again. Accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve a goal. So I'm gonna um, try to take that apart. <laughs> um, I would start with actually at the end, um, the notion of achieving a goal. So in, in any action, whether it's um, nonviolent or, or violent, you have a goal, an end, um, something you want to accomplish. So in the civil rights movement, um, the goal from my perspective was um, establish racial equality. Um, if you're on a football team, say, the goal is to win the game. If you have a, um, a falling out with a relative, your goal might be to reestablish that relationship. So the goal is, um, sometimes it takes a while to, to really get a hold of what, what is your end game? What are you really trying to achieve? Um, so then, for the sake of the cause, I had a hard time with this because they almost sound the same. For the sake of the cause and the goal, it's almost um, like the interchangeable. You know? But I, I, um, I would substitute um, the game plan. How are you going to achieve the goal? You know, what's your game plan? Um, like in the civil rights, a lot. A lot of the uh, plan was, from my perspective, to 
um, engage or um, I'm not sure of the right word, but to act against what they felt were unjust laws and to do it in a nonviolent way. Um, which, and it was part of that was to raise people's consciousness and, and those um, issues. So there was a lot of, that was the plan. This is, here's the goal. This is how we're going to do it. And flipping back to the beginning, if you're going to do nonviolent, you're going to, if your plan is, is not violating or take football game, even a football game. Um, if your plan is to win the game, and maybe the plan is to not take any unnecessary penalties, that might be part of the plan. So then you go back to the beginning, suffering without retaliation. And um, most people, when they hear that, they go, what? Suffering without retaliation? If someone does something to me, um, they deserve to have payback. So it's that uh, almost a, a natural from way back survival brain. Um, you know, if you cause me pain or harm, you deserve what you get back. And then other people will, will look at that and say, um, suffering without retaliation, that's a victim. You want people to be victimized and fall into that role. But the, it doesn't say suffering and do nothing. It says suffering and don't retaliate, which means getting, basically getting revenge, getting back at that other person. And it, so it doesn't say suffer and be a victim and just keep letting people beat up on you in various and sundry ways. So then what, what do you do when someone, um, when you feel someone has harmed you? Um, physically, when someone harms you physically, it's pretty, pretty graphic. But when, they, when, they, when you feel offended by what someone said about you, or they um, tricked you, or they told lies about you, um, what I try to do is, first of all, ask myself, why does that offend me? You know, what in me got hooked by that, if anything? So that's one thing. Look at your own um, inner workings when it's a, um, a non-physical attack. And another thing is, even whether, whether it's physical or, or psychological um, is being able to um, ask yourself, why is that person feeling the need to do that? What's, where were they harmed? Um, you know, in terms of what would cause them. And, and try, you know, you use the word love, you've ever responded to love. And to me, that's, that's a great idea. But what, what does that mean in everyday life? So there is a, a way of not responding with your own violence and, and revenge. And I think the, the, 
one of the key things to remember about this is um, you're not going to get to the place where you are totally able to accept suffering without retaliation. It's going to take a while. So the goal for me is always to um, do a little bit better in that area of accepting um, the suffering without retaliation. It also doesn't mean um, don't have feelings about it. You know, if someone harms you and you get angry, um, that is fine. It's okay. It's natural. The, the question then is, what are you going to do with that anger, that energy that, that you have? You know, are you going to um, use it to uh, motivate yourself to even stay um, nonviolent? So there's, there's uh, a lot of um, complexity to this step, our principle, probably to all of us, a lot of complexity. And um, to another thing that, that enter, <clears throat> excuse me, enters into this is the ability to um, be patient and to persevere. You know, it's, you're learning how to act nonviolently in these situations. And if you accept the suffering, that's, there's a, um, an energy that gets communicated, I think, to the person that's, that's doing the violence to you. You know, they, um, it's hard to explain, but I, um, or I find it hard to explain. But there is a, an exchange, and there are plenty of examples where um, a person has threatened to um, use violence, and the nonviolent person ex accepted it, and the person um, said, oh, 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 you know, there's a classic example of someone, I think, in the civil rights, <clears throat> excuse me, where someone was going to attack them with their knife if they didn't get out of the chair. And the, the person said, well, I'm not going to move, but, you know, if you have to do that, uh, go ahead. And the, the perpetrator, if you will, was like, well, they just couldn't do it. So, so there's an energy conveyed there. So um, let me stop there. And if uh, either Dan or Mal uh, have responses or questions, great. If, um, if not, we can move forward with the next one. Well, I think Martin Luther King's people, and that I always have that vision of them sitting at the table at the uh, counter and having, you know, food poured on their head. Yeah. And that, that. Yeah, and and they accepted that because of the goal that they were mm -hmm. And they knew that if they responded, that would their goal would not be reached, not yeah. the way that they would want it to be reached. Mm -hmm. But it, it it doesn't it's nothing that you can do without a lot of soul searching training. Yes. Just, you yeah. know, working together in your community. I mean, all these things are go against what we would naturally do. Mm -hmm. If somebody poured coffee on our head or whatever, you know, what's our natural instinct is to, you know, to get up and give it back or whatever, push another way. But they were trained not to do that. I think that's an enormous 
feather in their cap. I, I'm always intrigued when I see those pictures. So it can be done, but it, it is not the natural reaction. And even on, on a more personal level, you know, if you have a, a dispute with a neighbor or a family member, um, you have to be somewhat aware of your own feelings and be able to control them um, and continue to try to deal with that person in a, in a nonviolent way. Um, there's a a whole program on nonviolent communication by Rosenberg, which is a whole way of, on a personal level, um, trying to heal a relationship or make a relationship better. Um, so it does take a lot of work, whether it's a global, you know, a mass movement or individual. You know, and again, it's that um, trying to be a little bit better today than you were yesterday. Yeah, another thing, Frank, as you're talking about personal or a more global goal, um, it's all very much tied up together. Yeah. So when I think about the young men and women who sat at the lunch counters and endured the insulting behavior of people around them, um, in some cases actually doing at least some physical harm to these people, mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if they were to fight back, then the goal that they're after, which is to be treated as in, in an equitable way, would have been overwhelmed by the visual of two oh, people yeah. fighting against each other. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the ultimate goal is to be treated equitably. The uh, they're using the lunch counters as a way to, you know, as a as a battle line in a certain sense, but not a not a violent mm -hmm. from end anyway, not a violent battle line, but a moral battle line. Mm -hmm. And as long as they engage at the moral level, then the battle becomes clear to everyone. As soon as they engage in a physical level of retaliation it's not the same battle that they were originally fighting for. It becomes just a spectacle for people who are used oh, yeah. to seeing people fight with each other. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I do see that difference between the goal. The goal is to be treated equitably and the, um, what's the other word, Frank? The, uh, the cause, for the sake of the cause. For the sake of the sake of the cause. Okay, so the cause is to be treated equitably. The goal is to um, basically highlight the day-to-day -day, uh, inequity that people experience um, so that it can be seen and so it can be confronted and dealt with at a moral level because the physical fighting is not going to achieve the um, objective, the long-term objective. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll go on to um, principle five because uh, it is a very um, interesting and complex, like everything else, uh, but definitely something we should strive for. And principle five says 
that we need to avoid the internal violence of the spirit as well as external physical violence. And when I break this apart, I understand the external physical violence if you're a nonviolent person. It's very clear that you should avoid external physical violence, fighting back, insulting back, or, or whatever. But the hard part, I think, is to understand what is meant by internal violence of the spirit. Um, and it gets, I think, to a very deep moral um, issue is about that you have to understand the consequences of the attitude that is in, say, you're in a campaign to bring about change. That attitude has to be pure. I think is the word I would use. That there isn't the retaliation in your own heart, the hatred in your own heart, the dismissal of that person as human in your own heart. That's internal violence of the spirit when you hold all of that. And I think we don't even realize that um, that, that that happens easily. It's very hard. To, it's, it's about forgiveness, you know, which... You know, we've learned, at least I've learned over the years, that forgiveness is just as important to the person who uh, needs the forgiveness as it is for the person asking for forgiveness. So when you hold that grudge for so long in your heart because you don't want to go to that person, or maybe you've gone and they don't want to forgive you, but if you can forgive them um, in spite of it all, then that takes a lot of, um, of a load off of your heart, off of your spirit. And that is healing in itself. And it's not an easy thing to do. I see it all around me. And, um, you know, people who, especially in families where there's been some disagreement or someone said something or ignored somebody, and they just hold on to that anger and resentment for years. You know, and not forgiving. And the person who had that happen to them is probably suffering even more than the person who did the deed because they've probably gone on and forgot about it. That person holds on to it. So it can happen, I think, in a um, uh, in a one-on-one, -on -one, or it can happen in a greater um, venue, like in when you're working within a campaign for to bring about change, or um, <clears throat> I think it's just one of those things that we, as a true nonviolent person, uh, we have, we, we can't, I'm going to say shoot our opponent, but I mean harm our opponent, but we also have to refuse to hate that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for, especially right now in today's world, which is January 8th, 2020, um, you know, looking at the situations that have happened over the last few days, it seems very easy to hate the demonstrators that moved into the Capitol and just, you know, um, defaced and defiled that space and threatened the lives of other people. There's a lot of rhetoric out there that these people are hateful and uh, using a lot of commentators using words like thugs and um, um, 
terrible ways of describing them. And yet, as nonviolent people, we're called to love them, to love them as human beings, not the acts that they're doing, but the fact that they are human beings and whatever it is that they believe is what they believe. So we're looking to see the good in that person. That's the only way you can preserve the community. Otherwise, we have the splintering of the community. And um, that really, we're about seeking the good of the people and the community and bringing the, the community back together, whether it's a family unit or a national unit or a world unit. You know, we, there is this real need, I think, to what um, I don't know if it's only Christians, but what we call agape love, which is that love that is um, understanding and redeeming the goodwill for all. Big, big thing to live up to, I think, but really worth it, I think, to learn about and think about and um, remember that we have to live together no matter what. We have to live together. And if we see everybody as our enemy um, and that they deserve to be uh, hated, then we will never have a beloved community. So even though we see these, to see other people, many people maybe as our enemies, we still have to treat them with love and understanding and um, not hate them, which is a big order. So I think you need community to do that. You need your own um, people who are nonviolent like you are to talk it through, to talk about your feelings, to help you because it's not um, easy um, to come to that place where you can love your enemies and you want only good for them. So um, I think that the spirit and morale that people had during the civil rights was to bring this, um, ex uh, to bring the internal violence of the spirit to cure that, I don't know if it's cure, it might not be the right word, but to recognize that that is going to keep them from their goal. Mm -hmm. That if people harbor all this violence in their heart and in their spirit, then the goal of a united community won't happen. So they did a lot of work, I think, um, through music, community action, working together, being together, encouraging each other to um, to be able to do this very difficult principle of avoiding internal bonds of the spirit. So I think we've got the external physical violence. We understand that better. I do. The internal violence of the spirit is one that I think is a constant, constantly for me anyway. Um, thing that I must work on and understand and, and uh, pray about really. So. I love that, Madeline, that idea of praying about it. It's like taking a moment to have all of that experience of all those feelings and thoughts and just being with it and praying for, I don't know, the forgiveness or the wisdom to, to deal with it. Yeah. Um, I would, I agree with pretty much everything you said, but I build some of it out a little bit and say, um, yes, that forgiveness. I love that notion of forgiveness and the way Dr. King 
I had a phrase uh, or a sentence, um, hating someone is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did he <laughs> so say that? I know that. Harm, harm than, than it is to the other person. Yeah. Um, but that does say something about, okay, you have, you know, it's natural, it's human um, to have uh, angry feelings about somebody who's hurt you or who's hurt someone you love or hurt an institution that you love. So there are feelings that come up from that. And I don't think the only thing we do with that is to just forgive the other people. I think there are two other things we do. Number one, manage our own feelings. We need to acknowledge that we're not wrong to have feelings, but we do want to manage those feelings in a way that they don't drive us unconsciously to do some action that we would regret. So number one is that, um, you know, I'm forgetting my other thought. Um, <laughs> we have to manage the feelings. I've forgotten what my other thought was. <laughs> well, sort of a, um, as you, uh, attempt to recollect that thought, um, I would add um, one of the um, things that sort of arose within me as you were talking, Madeline, is to, um, the notion of, of, like, in this particular situation that just happened in our capital, so um, a number of those people that were um, storming the, uh, the capital um they were doing uh, something illegal and um at least from the perspective of, of the war and that and now people whether even with the president calling you know he's going to resign or be impeached um and on the surface um those are fairly understandable um issues you know, with people calling them to be impeached that, or, you know, the um, people that stormed the, um, the capital for them to be arrested and prosecuted now. But I, I wonder if the people that are calling for that, if there isn't underneath that sort of so-called legitimate call a real um, anger, you know, like those sons of a um, they're going to get what they deserve. And then you appear to be fairly rational up here because it makes sense that they should suffer the consequences. So because how do you, uh, this is a rhetorical question, how do you um, deal with someone that's broken the law or really harmed you um, and there's consequences to that? How do you enact those consequences or try to enact them? and still have a compassionate attitude towards that person. Because um, I, I think you, you can do both. I like the word compassion um, in this case better than, than love, even though they're sort of similar in, in many ways. You know, compassion is like really having, from my perspective, um, a feeling for that person and what they might have gone through in their life and what they might be about to go through. Um, so that's a, to me, that's a, I don't know, a better word in how to uh, say, be compassionate and at the same time um, work 
to have these people suffer the consequences of their their actions. Um, you know, and that would be true in any situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know that a lot of many people who are in prison, of course, are there because of violent acts. And then when you look at their background, mm. what they what they lived through as children or were treated like as you know young adults or whatever, you can understand their lashing out. And I think it's true even with demonstrators. I can understand what they why they did what they did. I don't agree with it, but what their information is is sending them in that direction. So there should be some compassion for the fact that, you know, I feel they're misled, but they, they still are doing it in their spirit of what they think is right. Right. Mm -hmm. and that's right that they're misled. And I think who the folks who are misleading them are culpable in a much larger way in yeah. a certain sense. Yeah. But it also goes back to each individual that they have chosen their information sources. They have chosen uh, to believe what they believe and not believe, you know, whatever, um, and to act in certain ways on those beliefs. There are lots of places on that route where they might have made other choices. So it goes back, Frank, to what you were saying a little while ago, and I'll use the word accountability. I mean, we can be enormously compassionate for people who have made choices that just don't work um, for the health of our society on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, people need to be held accountable. And what does that mean? It means knowing the facts of what they did, knowing, having very specific information that they and everyone can look at that says, okay, this is what happened. This is what you did. These are our norms. These are our laws. And the consequences are this. And even Dr. King talked about that. He says, when we violate the law, um, the, the way we're doing it, the reason we're doing it, suggests that we have the highest respect for the law. It's not that we don't, don't think the law got, you know, we don't have respect for the law. We have respect for the law as it's written, but we also um, have respect for that higher law, the law, you know, the sacred law of, um, of I don't know, the, maybe your religious sense of right and wrong. Yeah, and you know they they mentioned in the suffering piece of without retaliation, if you're going to enter into a um, a mass movement type thing, um, you might want to consider how ready you are to die. That might go to prison. Is it bad enough? Yeah. So it's you know. But um, I know how to say this, but it, um, I feel in a way that. Um, and I don't know how this fits in, but people that are upset and annoyed um, at what happened in our capital are um, judging those people as doing wrong. So we're looking at it from our perspective. 
And when you go back in history, this country was founded on a, a violent revolution. Yeah. Um, so it's it gets um, very complex. Um, and I've, I've found that whenever I take a position, and, and I think this is part of nonviolence, you also, I also try to take the position that um, I might be wrong. But I have to, as best I can, stand in my own truth, for lack of a better word, but at the same time, be open to what, what the other side is saying. I, I suppose the, the one bias I have is you don't have to use violence. That's, that's probably um, the, you know, if you think our, the government, you know, in this case, there was cheating and fraud and all that stuff, um, you don't have to use violence to address it, even though um, most people will say, and I, I couldn't even say with my bias, I may be wrong, maybe the humanity is not evolved enough to um, right wrongs without some violence sometimes. So I don't know, it's, it, it can just kind of like spin around and get really deep. Um, but I, I guess the bottom line is to, to hold people with, with love and compassion in your heart as best you can. While you hold them accountable for their actions. Both things. Both things. Yeah. Yes. Otherwise, but it's a it's accountable um, based on what? On our laws and also the the when you go back to the civil rights movement, the um, yeah, okay, the the civil rights people were, were breaking the law and they were willing to be accountable to the consequences of their actions based on the current laws. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, right. All right, yeah. we'll give you the hard one. Okay. <laughs> well, I love this principle, uh, this uh, the sixth principle in Kingian and Nonviolence. Um, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Um, and the reason that I love it be, is because it requires so much grappling. <laughs> to understand the meaning of it. And it's, and in fact, all of them do actually require a lot of grappling, but this is often the toughest one for people that are new to this to, to grapple with. And um, because there's a lot of evidence against, um, against it at first glance, like really the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. I can give you a lot of examples where that is not what's happening or what happened. Um, but there's another thing Dr. King used to say, which I think belongs in tight 
connection with this principle, and that is that um, change doesn't roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but comes through continuous struggle. And so I think when Dr. King articulates this principle that the universe bends toward justice, he's not saying, well, if you sit around and twiddle your thumbs long enough, justice will inevitably arise. He's clearly not saying that. Um, he, I think what he's saying is that that sense of justice is inherent in the human spirit. And we can recognize what something about what justice is, and we have an innate internal sense of desire, knowing what it is and desiring it. And there's energy behind that. So if we live in this world together and we see, see instances of injustice, there's something inside of us that is called upon and that brings out our best selves um, to try and make that difference. So when the universe bends toward justice, he's talking about the hearts of human beings actually bend toward justice and the human family bends toward justice. Even little kids have some sense of what's there and what's not there. Little kids. Probably more than adults. <laughs> well, life gets complicated. <laughs> well, the older you get. And the fact is, you know, when we're children, we expect our environment many children. I not all children grow up in a relatively fair environment, so I don't want to say too much about that. But a lot of children grow up in an environment that fundamentally has a sense of fairness to it. Once you get to be a grown-up, you find out that doesn't automatically happen. And you need to participate in the generation of justice. So Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long. We have a lot to learn, and we're still learning how to do it. But it bends for justice. Okay, uh, we ramble on a little bit more, but I think um, I'll stop there. Um, <clears throat> hope you uh, enjoyed it. As you can see, as we kind of rambled along, it, it can get pretty complex and. Uh, going back, and uh, I think one point is we're trying to get the, the principles and the steps more to where you can apply them in your everyday life. Um, a lot of, of some of the things we touched on were more um, global, if you will, or more around movements and demonstrations and that. And those are obviously very important. Um, but also, we want to keep trying to get it back to how we can use these principles and steps in our own individual life. Um, so it gets a little uh, complex there from time to time, but I hope you enjoyed uh, the presentation. And at some point in the near future, I think we'll go back and look at these uh, principles, especially just one at a time and really try to give examples of how they can be used in everyday ordinary life. Um, and given that, again, we'd love to get input from you people in terms of um, questions or points or um, 
points of view, observations, those types of things, which we can incorporate into our future episodes. So uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. This is, we're doing an episode six and we're with four parts. So this is the second part. And the, the title is basically Living into the Beloved Community, which is really about you and I building this beloved community. So uh, another point the, that I mentioned before, the steps and principles, if you go to the website, and um, I hope you do, um, dailypeacemaker.com, in the resource page, there is a place where you can download the six principles and six steps. So take, uh, give us a visit, send us an email. You can call, leave a message. I would really like to hear from you, especially since we're all doing this together, you know, um, trying to build this beloved community. And it's good to, uh, to keep in mind that the arc of the universe, the evolution of creation, if you will, does move towards justice for all. And uh, it's hard work. And in a sense, it's pretty much up to us if we're going to get there. So with that, um, may your day go well or your evening, wherever you might be. And um, peace. All right, you take care. And we'll go over here and uh, end it also. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening. Hello there. Uh, Frank Thacker here, and welcome to the Daily Peacemaker. Um, let's see, today uh, we're going to do episode six, part three. Um, so we've done part one and two in previous um, episodes. So very astutely, we decided to call this uh, part three. Um, seriously, a little context. Uh, part three is the um, first three steps of King Ian nonviolence. There are uh, six steps, as you probably know. Um, and in the, the context is that we here at the Daily Peacemaker feel that if we're going to create a culture of peace, it pretty much has to come from the bottom up and it has to be grounded in nonviolence. And if we're going to try to live our lives as nonviolently as possible, it's very helpful to have a, a model or a, a philosophy um, of nonviolence, sort of a, a, a model, but a, um, a program maybe that you could uh, use to, to guide you through. And one of the best that we've found is the um, Kingian um, principles and steps of nonviolence. So the um, first three, uh, first two sessions, excuse me, were on the, the principles of Kenyan nonviolence, and you can find them on, on the website or on our Facebook page or what, whatever, the, the first two sessions. So the third session is on the, we're going to switch now to the, to the steps. And um, the, in Kenyan nonviolence, the Principles are often referred to as the talk, and the steps are referred to as the walk. So as you 
have heard many times, if you want to walk the talk, then that's what you need to do. It's, uh, it's pretty easy to talk, but let's see if you're going to walk the talk. So we've got the, the principles, the guidelines, if you will, um, the philosophy. Um, and now we're going to look at the steps, what, what you can do um, in terms of your everyday life. Um, so the first three steps are, are um, one of those fabulous uh, videos that we do with myself and Pam and Madeline. So um, let me just, uh, without further ado, bring those up. So you got to do the screen share and go to files and then uh, go to Google Drive and we're going to hit share and then connect to Google Drive. And I keep running into the problem where um, even though there is a little guy up in the corner, we can't seem to get rid of him. Sometimes you can do it with the steps, but then when you do the recording of the Zoom, which is what I'm doing, he shows up again. So we just try to uh, ignore him. So uh, we're gonna open this here in just a minute. We're gonna do share, here we go, and off we go. So lean back, get your popcorn, whatever, and uh, hope you enjoy this. Hi, uh, my name is Frank Thacker, and I'm here with my good friends, Pam McDonald and Madeline Labriola. And we are here to talk about the, um, the steps of king and nonviolence. And there are six of them, and they can actually be applied to both a, a what we would call a personal situation, say someone, um, I had a, an experience, something like this, where I was away, I came home and a neighbor had put up a fence that I thought was on my property. So there, um, I incorporated some of in my dealings with, with the family, I incorporated some of the, uh, the steps and we can, maybe those will come up here and there as we talk about it. Then on the other side, um, they can also uh, are important when you're dealing with a large community issue. Um, like say a corporation bought a big piece of land in your neighborhood and they wanted to put up office buildings and it would have, would really, um, destroy the, um, atmosphere of the neighborhood. It was a very tight knit neighborhood. Or there was another example of a town where, um, business was dumping their wastewater into the river. And so those are, um, larger events. So um, that's good to, to remember that uh, it can be used either way. The other important piece, I think, is that um, there are six of them, like I said, and it's not like, oh, I got number one done, so now I can go down the step or up the step to number two. They really, I don't know what the right word is, flow together or intermingle, and you can be doing one step that will help you with the fourth step and back and forth. And so it's good to remember that. And um, it's also ongoing. You're always kind of doing them. So um, with all that great introduction, I will uh, now start with the, um, I'm gonna do the first step, which is information gathering. And again, this is something that can be used both 
on a personal individual conflict and on a larger community one. And it's, um, it's more than just um, information gathering and just gathering the facts. I don't know if some of you are old enough to remember Dragnet, where the detective would just, you know, he'd come to interview a witness and they'd be running on and on and on with this and that. And then he'd say, just the facts, please, madam, just the facts. So, so information gathering is indeed gathering of the facts. But it's also um, doing some research around, you know, any past history, like with the, the person with the fence. Um, and talking to some of the neighbors, I learned that the reason they put the fence up was that they were going to get a couple of dogs. And they thought that um, it would be a good idea to have a fence. Um, so, you you know, you learn little things like that. And then in talking with the neighbors, um, of when you're gathering information either on the large scale or, or an individual one, talking with other people, getting their input and being able to, to listen to what they say. So it's a real... Um, as I said before, ongoing um, endeavor, and it can be applied to both an individual situation and a more community lodge. So that's that's um, a thumbnail sketch of information gathering. And um, I'll now turn it over to Madeline for the uh, the second step, which is education. So if you're here, Madeline. Da -da 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 -da. You're ready. I am. Inf okay. Well, sometimes it sounds like information gathering is similar to education, but I think education goes just a little bit deeper into um, the history and the um, the uh, importance of maybe letting people know something they didn't know before. Mm, yeah. And so. In the information, I mean, I think in a situation like the, trying to solve the problem with a neighbor and the fence, the information gathering is probably as much that you can do uh, because education would mean like going to the library and looking up different uh, different aspects of this, the problem and the history behind it and then getting that information out to other people. So in education, seems to me like it's easier to explain when you're doing something, um, some conflict re uh, resolution in a bigger picture. For instance, the second situation that you mentioned where a corporation or a big company wants to come in and build something that would really drastically change your, um, your neighborhood uh, where maybe it would add a lot to traffic. So you'd have to go in the education piece, you'd have to find out the plan, what they plan, what the zoning rules are, what the um, <clears throat> what the the past history of that company is. Sometimes is very important. You know, are they environmentally uh, concerned about things? How are their um, how do they treat uh, their you know the people in the community when because if you go to a town board meeting and you start questioning things, um, those that are, those people that are up front 
and are more willing to give you the information are much more helpful than those that are I've had that experience where you know they only tell you what they want you to know and don't really tell you <laughs> everything. Oh no, no, that's not true. <laughs> uh, so education is really about research and looking at things and in um, so social justice work. It would probably mean then passing that information out to other people through forums and debates and different ways of uh, telling people. Um, what the history is of something, for instance, if you were, um, <clears throat> you know, concerned about the health, I'm thinking of Love Canal, and you know, mm. really a long time, right. but you know how they had to find out how all of this was affecting people, uh, the uh, chemicals, the um, environmental issues. So um, there's the education piece can be very uh, timely, but really, really important and then getting that information out to other people so that they can make an informed decision uh, is really vital to being able to resolve a conflict. You can't go into something not knowing what you're talking about. That's probably the worst thing you can do if you want to resolve a problem, either on a personal basis or, or yeah. a, you know, uh, a, bigger, a bigger way. So in, in Martin Luther King's nonviolence, um, he was very, very good at this uh, education of the community, of the people, uh, and of his adversaries in order mm -hmm. to, um, to have there be more clarity and more uh, possibility of success. So education is a second step. Uh, yeah. can, I, uh, can I jump back in for a minute? Because I, um, um, I was thinking about um, the information gathering. Part of it is um, the same with the community thing in terms of getting, you know, the legal aspects, the zoning, um, that type of stuff, and educating yourself. But but it's like you can see, I can see the difference with the um, the larger thing where you have to get a lot of um, information and then educate the rest of the group about it. That's a a real key uh, piece. And I, I think you touched on it too also, <clears throat> excuse me, and this is more so with the big corporation probably than with the neighbor, but getting a, a sense of um, what's motivating them also if you can, you know. So it, it's, as we were saying, it's a very, the two of them are very sort of uh, mixed together but they're, they're different in other ways. So mm -hmm. uh, I just want to throw that out there. Thanks. So I guess, uh, are you ready to move to? Uh, I'll move to Pam. Uh, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. We have Great. Pam who's going to do step number three. Step number three, personal yeah. commitment. Um, I actually <clears throat> love step number three, personal commitment. Um, because in some ways, when you want to make change in the world, um, there's a way in which that, uh, you know, if it's significant change, if it's difficult change, that's where the crux of the matter is. Where do you have the personal commitment? So personal commitment is when you assess the issue for yourself. Like, how committed am I to make this happen? 
what am I willing to sacrifice to make this happen? Um, am I clear enough on the issue that I have confidence in how I see it and some confidence that I can make a way with, uh, you know, with collaboration with other people, if I can make a way to solve this problem. And honestly, one of the things that comes to mind for me, and please forgive me for not remembering her name, but some of us will be familiar with the issue of the Flint water uh, mm. situation. Yeah where a doctor was finding suddenly elevating levels of lead in her patients. And at first it, it seemed incidental and then the numbers were mounting and then she began to realize something is going on here. And so she put in the time and effort to figure out, okay, what is that thing? And then she decided this was so important she was willing to basically risk uh, so much about her life um, to speak about this issue, to tell the people in charge about the issue, and to document the issue. And if you've read the book that she wrote about her efforts, she went into an enormous amount of detail, enormous amount of work and checked her information and checked it and checked it and checked it and handed it off to other people. This did not happen because uh, she was kind of interested in the issue. This happened because she assessed for herself that this was an essential, important issue for her community. And that even though public health was not specifically her job, public health was something she could understand and learn the language of. And that the issue was important enough that she could put her whole uh, life, basically all her spare life energy into solving this problem. It took a long time but her data was um, indisputable. Like people tried, wanted to poke holes in it because it was a big problem to solve. It still is a big problem to solve, but she still cares about yeah. it. She's still fighting for it. And so are the people in her community. And only because of her personal commitment. Otherwise it wouldn't have shown up on anybody's radar screen. It would have been shot down and people would have been living with the consequences with no way to deal with them. So, I mean, th that's just one example, but there are so many of people, Dr. Dr. King, who just found within himself the uh, determination and commitment to continue on, even though he was risking his life, he was risking his family's life. He was putting, uh, by taking action, he knew that people were taking risks with their lives. And it's not because he didn't care that he was uh, risking, you know, setting up things that would risk other people's lives. He cared a lot about it. It gave him pause, but he continued because his personal commitment to this, um, to civil rights and to healing the nation, the whole nation was that deep a personal commitment for him. And, and people's commitment can cost them a lot. It, it cost his life, but even jobs 
mm-hmm. in the community. Uh, so yeah, and um, you have to be passionate about it, I think, in order to continue. Because a lot of times there'll be a lot of negative uh, re- reaction to what you're trying to do because you're sometimes taking on a big corporation or taking on, you know, yeah. powers, power people who are much more powerful. So yeah, I found when I um, decided to do something with the with the neighbor. Um, you know, this was a while ago, and I don't really remember reflecting back on the notion of personal commitment, you know, and I guess that's a, um, when I think about it, it's a real hard issue because especially maybe on a larger, you know, community, um, you know, how can you assess how committed you are when you don't know all the fallout that may happen over a couple of years. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I guess maybe do you think it's okay if you take on something and after two years you find you're just running out of energy? And um, Well, I think that yeah. step of personal commitment is like the other steps. You don't do it once, check it off, and move on, not going back mm-hmm. to that step again. Um, I, I think you assess in the, that first moment in time when you realize, wow, I need to really look at this. You assess in that moment what you're willing to take on. It's turning out it's taking more. Then, then you reassess that. Oh, okay, um, yeah. And then the other yeah. thing is you can start to realize, oh, this is an issue in my community or in my neighborhood or in my life. This is an issue. But you know what? It's not worth it the effort yeah. it's going to take to solve it. So I'm willing to accept it. My personal commitment is in accepting this without trying to change it because I'm up to other things right now. I'm not going to really address yeah. it. <clears throat> so so are you you saying, and I think that's a good point, where, all right, you've got all this information and, and education piece, and now you're going to decide to commit yourself to this. But as the process goes on, you get more information or new information and, and new pieces of education. And then you say, okay, I got all this new stuff. Am I still willing to continue? So that's a, that's a good way to look at that. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to say something about personal commitment in solving of uh, personal <clears throat> uh, conflicts. I think that that is really important to know how committed are you to the relationship? Yes. Yeah. And the work through. And uh, I mean, unfortunately, I know several family uh, members who are, um, you know, like at odds with each other, Mm -hmm. talking to each other and that kind of stuff. I'm thinking, well, what is their commitment to have this relationship be, uh, or be, you know, or are they willing to give that up because they have to uh, compromise or they have to be the first one yeah. out, you know? So I think commitment is a very important in, in everything from the simplest conflict. How much am I willing to go out uh, and and, have, mm-hmm. and solve this? Or is it just something I'm willing to, you know, let go and, and not put in the effort and the time and the energy and uh, maybe even the... Um, you know, the feelings that go along with that. Uh, yeah. wrong. You know, I might be uh, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, no, no. no. <laughs> that. but uh, that's, a, 
that's another good point. When you um, with family members, and we all know family members, maybe not on their own, but in other families, with people don't talk to each other. Oh, yeah. So on an issue like that, you need both people to be involved. The same with with the neighbor. You don't really need that neighbor to be interested in the relationship, even though that may be an important thing to you. And the neighbor may not be, but you can still address the issue in a, in a more, I don't know what the right word is, rational, legal type type way. Um, what worked out with, with that neighbor and myself, um, we were at a hearing and about the, what he wanted to do. And um, it never got heard. So I went over and started talking to him afterwards. And actually, between the two of us, we got an agreement worked down over a period of a couple of months. But so there's a difference. My point is, is a difference between like when it's really what you were talking about, Madeline, an ongoing um, type of, uh, of family or long-term relationship, yeah, compared to just an individual that you don't really know. So... Um, so great. That's a good point. So, um, <clears throat> all right. So we got anything? Uh, well, just in summary, so there are three out of the six that we're discussing today. The data mm -hmm. collection, education, and personal commitment. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then mm -hmm. next time we'll do the other three. But you can mm -hmm. see how they flow together. It's like, yeah, not, definitely. Not, oh, I got that one checked off and this one checked off. And, you know, um, so I would add a little something about the education part um, mm -hmm. that I picked up when I was doing a little research for this little talk. Um, in some places, I see education as um, uh, part of that element is finding people who are good at communicating the issue. So mm -hmm. who's going to be good at writing a little letter to the editor? Mm -hmm. Who's going to be good at... Um, you know, uh, I don't know, it depends on how big the issue is, uh, communicating yeah. in a blog or communicating in a podcast or something, who is good at collecting that information so it, the useful stuff can get passed out to the public. So usually when you have an issue of any size, you're going to have to educate more than the two parties involved. You're going to have to educate oh, yeah. your yeah. segment. So education has to do with how do you get the word out in a way that people can come along with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When it's a community issue, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah and changing your mind is a lot. Of, I mean, we're witnessing this right now in our culture, right? A lot of misinformation. So to, oh, yeah. To yeah. To draw those people in that uh, to hear new information you know that they can agree with or not but at least even just to be open and that's both sides by the way yeah definitely so okay so uh we're good we got the three yeah. steps everybody out there understands them perfectly now <laughs> after our <laughs> presentation so if you want to learn more uh, join with us again when we do uh i no, four, five, and six. Four, five, Those are going to be really interesting, folks. So Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, all right, so we're back. Um, <clears throat> hope you enjoyed that. And um, as you can see, these things can get pretty complex. Even as I was listening to this for, I don't know, the 
fourth or fifth time, um, I was struck by, by some of the uh, new insights. So even in, in terms of um, a personal issue, say with a, with a family member, um, you know, you might have another person in the family that is good at educating both sides, you know, as, as to what, what's really going on and, and sort of a, a very open way. Um, the whole notion of commitment, even on a personal level, um, you may be working on a relationship and you may find after um, a couple of months, a couple of years that it's going nowhere. So you um, begin to realize that uh, you don't have the, the energy and the time to stay committed to resolving this issue. <clears throat> so you, um, so as I was saying, the more I listen to these, these principles and steps, the, um, the more nuances, the more uh, understanding um, that I get. So I think it's, uh, it's an, an important thing to keep going over these again and again. And um, they'll all be on the website for as long as the website's there, which hopefully will be a long time. So you can always go back and refresh and your mind and look at those. And um, as, I, as I, I think I mentioned at some point, we wanna go back over these one by one, just have a session on each one and, and take a, a per, more personal everyday issue. And with that context in mind, again, we'd love to, um, to get some questions uh, from you people around instances you may be struggling with or um, insights of something you've learned, those types of things. So um, love being with you. Uh, hope you enjoyed this, the session and as I mentioned last time, and um, so I remember this time to end with a indigenous or Native American blessing. So let me leave you with this. May the sun bring you energy by day. May the moon softly restore you by night. May the rain wash away your worries. May the breeze Blow new strength into your being, and may you walk gently through the world and know its beauty all the days of your life. So with that in mind, um, say goodbye, peace, and as always, thanks for listening to us, and if you get a chance, visit our website, dailypeacemaker.com. Peace. Hi, I'm Frank Thacker here, and welcome to the Daily Peacemaker. Today, we are going to look at uh, steps four, five, and six of um, King and Nonviolence. And um, what we're going to do is show you, share with you another one of our award winning videos with um, myself and Madeline and Pam. So let's, uh, let's jump right into that. Um, share sound. Um, Optimize, all right, so go to files, we go to uh, Google Drive, hit that, then you're gonna go into Google Connect, and that will bring us up to 
the places where steps four, five, and six are um, resting. So we'll click on that and um, anybody can see this and this should get us going. Share screen. Share sound, optimize the video, and share that, here we go. So hello everybody. Um, the um, infamous trio is back to uh, talk some more about the, uh, the six steps. Um, I'm here, Frank, with uh, Madeline. Hello. Hi, and Pam. So, uh, um, so some of you probably know if you watched us before that we recently did the first of the three of the six steps, and now we're going to spend a little time talking about uh, the five, four, five, and six, the last three steps. Um, Frank, so, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I was just thinking, maybe repeat that. It's the six steps of conflict resolution. Because yeah, I was going to, yeah. Okay, just when we say steps, you know, people. Yeah, I was going to, um, yes. You must have been reading my script. Okay. I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I was going to, um, so some of you watched before, um, we went through the first three, which are information gathering, um, education, and then personal commitment. So then the the uh, next uh, ne um, negotiation and um, what are the the next two that you guys are doing? Direct action and reconciliation. Reconciliation. And the negotiation you're doing, right? Yeah. So I'll start with that. And um, as we pointed out last time, it's always good to remember these steps all kind of flow together and in and out of each other. Um, so theoretically. You know, you've got your uh, your information. You've educated, you know, the uh, people, necessary people, and you're really committed to seeing this process through. So negotiation is pretty much what it says it is, where you sit down with the other party and try to work out not a compromise per se, but something that. Um, is maybe a new way of addressing the problem where both of you feel uh, pretty good about it. And um, again, even though you've got a lot of your information and your commitment stuff, you, you have to remember that you need to be always open to getting new information, new education, and having to renew your commitment. So it's a negotiation. And also, even if you, um, feel you're not quite prepared and the other party says, well, let's sit down and talk about this a little bit first. Um, you should be, I think you should be flexible enough to do that because um, you don't have to end up with the resolution at that point. You can always say, well, I've got to study this a little more or, or whatever, we can come back. So you have to be flexible in these things. Um, you also, um, it's really helpful if, if you, know where the other side is coming from, you know, what they really want and um, what their agendas will will be. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, back and forth this there with that. Um, it's, you probably want to meet in a neutral place, a safe place rather than 
say you're dealing with the corporation going to their main office, you know, and where they might not even ask you to sit down. But uh, no, I shouldn't say that. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, going with good intentions. Um, so, you know, I can give you a quick example. Another, um, um, uh, we had another neighbor that wanted to do some stuff with the property that was going to call for a lot of variances. And um, I was opposed to that because one of the houses they wanted to build was uh, about 10 feet from our property, which is all wood. So there's a lot of varying issues. But um, before we even, they had to go to the town council and get the zoning and all that stuff approved. And there's these hearings. And, you know, I showed up at the first one and never got heard. But I went over afterwards to the other party and and said, "Let's talk about this." And they were they agreed to that. And um, without going into too much detail, I can add some stuff later. We worked out something between the two of us that was different from the original um, things that they wanted to do. But both what we worked out was good for both both of us, and all of the neighbors were involved too. So so it's a it's a um, Negotiation is a complex thing, so have to be flexible. You have to be as well prepared as you can be, and very uh, um, aware of other, you know, body movements, facial expressions, feelings that that go on, even um, with yourself and with the um, the other party. And you're always looking for something that both people feel good about and maybe even have formed some kind of connection between each other in the long run. So that's, um, that's a thumbnail sketch of negotiations. So um, I guess the, the next is um, who's up next. Direct action. Direct action. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> when, when negotiations doesn't work or breaks down, then uh, the next step in conflict re- reconciliation would be to take direct action. And that can have be many, many different forms. It could be as simple as if you're doing this as a community effort. Let's, let's take, for example, what's going on right now in our culture with Black Lives Matter and our past experiences with civil rights and women's rights. They all use these methods uh, to solve the conflict, to solve the problem. So you could uh, say, starting with even leaflet, leafleting, leaf. That's <laughs> a hard word to say. Passing yeah, out leaflets. Handing out leaflets, <laughs> <laughs> um, to get, which would be part of educating people or picketing. Uh, I, I was thinking of the when the schools went on strike as a teacher, you know, it was the negotiations broke down and then the teachers went on strike. So strikes are another form of, um, of uh, direct action. Demonstrations that we're seeing, marches, um, and then other forms of resistance. I'm thinking mainly like with the civil rights movement, uh, sitting down in the, um, uh, in, in the diner or in the, lunch, the luncheonette and refusing to move, resisting that, whatever that is. And then finally, civil disobedience, which would be the highest level uh, in which you 
decide that you're going to break the law and suffer the consequences to make your point. So it goes from a very simple level of, of uh, handing out literature, picketing, or um, marching in the street, demonstrating in a nonviolent way. I think you have to be a little careful, though, that um, there are really two meanings to this. One is that you've decided to take responsibility to intervene in the situation, and you've decided that to begin constructive work by not waiting for someone else to do the work, but for you to physically put yourself out there. And two, uh, when all else has failed, education, personal commitment, negotiations have failed, then you uh, have, are going to try to resolve the problem uh, in, an, in a direct action, which is very visible. It, it, make, it brings the problem from paper, private, to public. Uh, so it becomes a very, it's almost like uh, staging a, a street drama in a way. And it gets a lot of attention if you're doing like a demonstration or a march or a sit-in or a, boy, a boycott could also be another form. I'm just thinking about that. It may not directly be uh, out in the open. You may boycott a, a company that's doing something that, you know, you feel is wrong by you know, not buying their products or, but, you know, trying to get other people involved. So um, there, you know, there are over 200 techniques that could be used of, for nonviolent direct action. It's amazing when you think about it. So uh, you could find that anywhere, just put 200 techniques of nonviolent action mm -hmm. into Google and you'll get a whole list of different things that you can do. Um, <clears throat> so I find that direct action if uh, all else fails that you know it is a good way of bringing public attention to a really serious issue I'm thinking can it be done in a in a um, individual way like if you're having a conflict with someone else what would the direct action be and I was thinking of of kids who like <laughs> may um may decide that their parents are being unfair, for instance, and they've tried to negotiate and they've talked it over and then the kids go on strike. They're not going to like clean their room or they're not going to come down for dinner or, you know. I mean, there are stories about that actually where young people have taken that kind of position. Um, so it, it could be done probably on a personal level to a certain extent. I, I think the power... The, the people in power probably for young people and adults might be quite different. But um, I think it also, you have to be careful that the nonviolent, the form, um, the form could be nonviolent, but you got to make sure that <clears throat> the way the issue is expressed is nonviolent. Like what is the attitude of the people? What do the signs say? So you could say this is a nonviolent action, but at the same time, if you're not, presenting it in a nonviolent way. For instance, some of the signs that Black Lives Matter sometimes are not nonviolent. They, they encourage, you know, dissension and violence. So it, it's a very tricky, but I think it, it's important to realize that the action, the attitude of the people and the message that you're giving also needs to be nonviolent. So, um, now, I, let me can I can I jump in because I think sure. that that point you made just then is is um, 
extremely important um, about if you do any direct action to be able to to do it in a with an attitude of nonviolence. And, um, and the the opposing party, it's not an ad adversarial. You don't want to take an adversarial approach to them because then you you've got them as a um, an enemy. And there's an old uh, saying I remember from the uh, King and Nonviolence, and the goal is not to win. How do I get? It's not to win over them, but to win them over. You know, so and rather than you're, you're not trying to conquer them and uh, put them in the place, but to get them to come over to see your side. So both people that are both parties are working for for the common good. But it is it's it's really um, a, a, a fine line or a delicate thing to balance on to. Uh, well, do this stuff. I, I think Martin Luther King was very good at that because he yes. he told people not to attack the person, yeah, to attack the system, mm -hmm. the, the policy, but not the people. Very hard. Yeah. That's, yes. That's yeah. the difference, you know. And I'll add to that that um, uh, sometimes attacking the people takes your eyes off the prize. You start mm -hmm. attacking the person and you forget the issue that you're actually working for. So if your language starts being about a person, you're not actually addressing the issue that you're fighting for. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's not just, um, you know, a generous spirited um, attitude. It is a, a strategic approach to solving the problem. Mm -hmm. Don't attack the people, attack the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, another point is, um, you know, when you when one engages in direct action, the people that are involved in that, they really need to be trained, you know, and and the and uh, how to remain nonviolent. Um, I think some of of the um, Black Lives Matter movements, the the people are motivated by a good cause, but they're not well trained. And some of those things um, can um, erupt into violence, you know, fairly easily. So it's a, you're going to do direct action, especially against a major institution or something. It's, it's a hard thing. And you're always, even when you're in the midst of direct action, you're always willing to get back to the negotiation table. Right. You know. And in yeah. fact, that's the point of the direct action is mm -hmm. to get back to the negotiation right. table. Mm -hmm. right. Right. You yeah, only go to direct action when you don't have the other party working with you to solve the problem. You go to direct action to force them to come back to the table with you to mm -hmm. do a negotiation. Yeah. Um, well, solve the problem. When, when the other party isn't even listening, like... Right. With, uh, I mean, I'm sure a lot of work has been done way before Black Lives Matter to try to solve the problem under the table or with different groups. But then the real change hasn't been systemic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, then it becomes something that you uh, have to go in a bigger way to a, to a more visual um, experience of the problem.
So, but I think that the, um, the uh, message could be lost if people aren't careful. And then yeah. you get people that maybe supported you at the beginning, but now are saying, no, 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 wait. That's, you know, so mm-hmm. it is a very, very tricky uh, thing. But we have very good examples throughout history of how that has worked. So, yeah. but the, I think with the Black Lives Matter, like people aren't trained as they were during the civil rights. Uh, so they just took to the streets without a lot of. Um, so I need to step into our our talking about Black Lives Matter and and how they're working with this problem, um, because number one, uh, to the extent that we know anything about it, mostly what we know is what we see is presented to us on a screen or whatever. Um, certainly during the anti-war movement, during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and during you know the civil rights movement, it, the stuff that we saw on our television screens was carefully selected and designed to make certain people look like the enemies and certain people mm-hmm. to look like the, the good folks. And I think we really have to be careful when we make um, assessments of how a particular movement is operating to remember that most of our information is being selected um, and that we're seeing what somebody has chosen for us to see. So um, I've, I've also heard an alternate side to the Black Lives Matter movement that um, it's really interesting that it has lasted as long as it has without imploding in the way that the civil rights movement imploded after Dr. King's death. And in fact, even before his death, it was starting to break apart into factions. And and the Black Lives Matter movement continues to operate with its factions, but it's not shutting its down. There's still some forward movement going on with the Black Lives Matter movement. So, um, and, and I also... Uh, certainly had the impression from Doc Lafayette and some other people who've gone in and um, and talked and coached with people that have been leading the Black Lives Movement matter so that Black Lives Matters movement <laughs> so that it's not like nobody's had any training. There's lots of people who have had training mm-hmm. um, and uh, some of them are using that training and are very skilled in that training and other people have chosen not to use that training and are are approaching things in another way because they have another way of looking at the problem and feeling perhaps that they um, they need to show another side beside asking politely. <laughs> they, they need to... Um, provide something that says, listen, you got to deal with this problem and you have to deal with it now because otherwise look what's going to happen here. So um, for whatever Um, reasons. um, Yeah. Good point. The the whole Black Lives Matter um, movement is very uh, complex for sure. Yeah. And yeah, we get shown um, in the, the main media stuff that is sort of violent because that's what people want to see sad to say or that's what attracts people but uh so negotiations is a tough can be a tough um tough thing to deal with you know does take that personal commitment but uh and the direct action it seems to me uh kind of forces you back to that 
step of personal commitment. Yeah. You're going to go to direct action. You have to ask yourself again, well, what, what am I willing to put on the line here to take this direct action? Exactly. Um, and so I, I'm thinking again, just because I was so impressed with her story about the pediatrician <clears throat> in Flint, Michigan, who put her professional life on the line by, um, you know, writing up her statistics. That was a form of direct action. She did the research, um, you know, out in the world, and she tried to organize her argument in a way that was unassailable. And in fact, she did achieve that. But after a lot of hard work and some very capable people looking at her data. So before she wrote this report, she did everything she could to go through the usual means of solving the problem. But she wasn't getting anywhere. She didn't have a partner. So she used this report as a direct action to force them to come to the negotiation table. Mm -hmm. um, but it meant putting time and her um, reputation on the line. Mm -hmm. um, if she had done a sloppy job with that report, it would have been worse than doing nothing um, for herself and certainly for the cause. So, so Pam, how do we reconcile after all of this? Well, you know, we're just all of these things we're talking about. Um, so, <laughs> Uh, I love this step of reconciliation because it sounds like the birds are singing and the rainbows <laughs> and the blue sky and oh, everybody's happy and we're singing Kumbaya and, you know, bowing if, with respectfulness to each other because we <laughs> solved the problem and everything's fine. And actually, no, that's, that's actually not how it works. Reconciliation, it seems to me, is when you're really in the weeds for creating the world you want to live in. So you may have gotten the details down on paper and you may have had a court of law decide in your favor. You, you know, whatever those pieces of power that you have been um, dealing with to try to get yourself to an agreement. But then reconciliation is living out that agreement. How do we work together to live out that agreement? So I think back to Dr. King's first, you know, very public civil rights campaign, which was the Montgomery movement for um, integrating the bus system in Montgomery, Alabama. And they came to this fabulous agreement, thank you, Supreme Court ruling just in the nick of time. And then the Black people had to start riding the buses with all these white people in the community, including the bus drivers, who didn't really think this was a great idea. And so they would get on the bus and, you know, some of the bus drivers were terrific, but some of the bus drivers were not terrific. And certainly some of the riders were not terrific. And so individual people had to be courageous enough to get on the bus and sit where they wanted in the face of insults, or wisecracks or whatever and choose how to respond in order to continue to move toward the world that they really, that all everybody really ultimately wants to live in, every, virtually everybody, where people can get along. And a lot of people were not ready to take that step and they had to be courageous in the face of resistance 
so that people would get used to this new world that they were living in. Um, I, I have to, I have to hand it to people who are willing to do that because the insults that went their way, the resistance that went their way, they, they didn't deserve it. <laughs> um, you know, they've been honorable in their struggle and yet they still had to absorb all of these insults and not react in a negative way because they could, if they un they could undo the progress that had been made if they start it started to be a tumult again so um i don't know if that's helpful to think about but i i definitely want to clarify that it's not birds singing and you know um rainbows in the sky it's it really gets down to the nitty gritty of living it out in the face of continued resistance and ultimately, the new normal occurs if, mm -hmm. if the reconciliation is successful. But it takes something to get to the new normal. Well, I think it takes a long time to achieve, and the doors open, and then it closes, and it opens. And mm -hmm. it it's not a straight line. Mm -hmm. That's and, right. Uh, and maybe some people never change their minds about how they feel about, you know, the other side mm -hmm. being, being able yeah. to be like them or whatever so um you know i'm um i'm thinking about uh as we're talking here um this whole notion of reconciliation and a lot of the um big movements like black lives or the civil rights the changes were were mostly um will be legal you know, and you, that's a step, but you, um, how do I want to say this? It's hard to be reconciled just because someone passes a law. So it, it, mm -hmm. it begins to filter back down to the, to the individual people. So like Pam, how you mentioned where there are, um, people of color that took the risk of, of getting on, a bus, knowing probably on some level they were going to be um, made fun of in spite of, of the law. Um, so, and then on the the other side um, of the so the two they have to be people, I guess, in both parties, whether it's you and, and your neighbor or you know some institution and people that are thinking that institu institution isn't being just. There has to be people in both those places that are willing to um, reach out to each other and, and talk about it, you know, to, to really be reconciled. So that comes back to the fact that, from my perspective, each of us um, has the ability within us to do something about issues, whether it's with your neighbor or with um, <clears throat> some larger group of people, you know, we can, uh, even if the laws aren't passed, that's okay. You can still on your own individual when you get a chance, you know, connect or try to connect with the other, other people like the, you know, going back to the Black Lives Movement, I know some of, of the people in the movement 
have been reaching out to different police departments and some of the police in those departments have been participating in some of the marches and the demonstrations and stuff. So it's that personal commitment and connection, I think, that's, that's going to move it, move us forward. So, And I think the least you could hope for is a, at least a civil relationship with the event. Yeah. Like, like you may, I have a neighbor like that who, you know, he's, he's very difficult to get to know or to have a relationship, but at least over the years, we were civil to each other, where there was a time when he would call and complain about everything. You know, somebody drove on his lawn, somebody dropped the paper out the window, whatever. Mm. And now he, we have been able to, over the years, by, I, I mean, maybe... I'm going to say I did hard more work than he did, but well, we can say <laughs> you know, that sometimes you have to do that. You have to give yeah. Oh, yeah. yourself. And so now it, it's, it, there's a much more, I feel civil relationship, but it'll never be a real friendship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, yeah. but so that, Madeline, that's I, I, you know, you're the one who knows because you have actually lived this out. But for myself, I want to always hold that miracles are possible. Mm -hmm. And stuff happens where people need each other or whatever. And, and you know, who knows what's going to happen out of that. Now, it can go in a negative way, too. It's not like everything's going to be in a positive way. But I think it's important to hold out that possibility for ourselves so that when we see an opportunity... Mm-hmm. Uh, to go in that direction, it's more visible to us. Mm-hmm. So, Amy, yeah. you always have such good lessons for me. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give My it children a try. Me like that, Madeline. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. There's some people that you know. You, you know, there's so much to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got to pick your pick your battles. It's not like battles, that. and also you're right though. If there's an opportunity, always be open for that. I think mm-hmm. it's true. Thank you. And there's, there's a lot of stories of, from the, the civil rights movement where, you know, especially with some of the stories that uh, Bernie Lafayette, uh, Lafayette used to tell about, um, you know, one time one guy came up to him with a knife and was ready to kill him. Well, no, it wasn't. It was someone else. And and the person said, well, you know, if you feel the need to do that, um, I'll be here to to let you do that. I'm not going to fight you. And the, and the person with the knife was like, what? What are you talking about? It was like almost totally transformed in, in the moment. So that yeah. miracle, if you will, or that I see it as an exchange of, uh, of energy that can really uh, move a person. So lots of stuff that one can do on an individual level. So. All right, we're going to end that there and come back here. And so, excuse me, that kind of uh, wraps up the uh, principles and the steps. So um, wraps up episode six in which uh, there are four parts, uh, each looking at the steps and and the principles. So, and that's always going to be there on the website. So um, you can, if you watch these or listen to them, you can see that uh, we've kind of, it's almost like a first layer of stuff in terms of going over these principles and steps and 
looking at them, we kind of, I guess, intermingled the personal and the, the larger scale um, type of stuff. So at some point, probably in the fall, would like to um, take some examples from everyday life and really examine those um, in the light of the steps and principles on the individual level, because the Daily Peacemaker is um, more focused on what you and I, ordinary people, can do in our everyday life to create that um, love community. So um, thank you for uh, listening, watching. And as always, um, we would uh, welcome um, hearing from you and um, send us emails, call us. If you have examples of things in your life that you would like us to, um, to examine in terms of the steps and the principles, we'd love to do that. Um, so we've got some other things lined up too, like the power and practice of nonviolence and that. So as always, thank you for listening. Um, great to be with you and always hope to hear from you and we will see you again soon. And um, I did remember to um, the idea of ending with the, uh, a blessing. And this is from um, the it's an Apache blessing. I'll just read it here. May the sun bring you new energy by day. May the moon softly restore you by night. May the rain wash away your worries. May the breeze blow new strength into your being. And may you walk gently through the world and know the beauty of all the days of your life. So we'll end with that and peace to all. And Hope to see you again soon. Take care.